0: Hey team, welcome to episode 52 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So today we have a special episode for you. We've pulled our evaluation extraordinaire out of the weeds and have special guest Don Whitehurst here to help us talk about an important part of both transitions and formal valuations that is risk. Now, if you've engaged our team to perform a formal evaluation of your practice, chances are you've had the pleasure of working with Dawn. She joined the NDP team a little over three years ago, and she is just the perfect person to walk us through the complicated area of risk. Welcome to Transition Talk, Dawn. Thank you,
1: Christy. I appreciate you pulling me out of the weeds to enjoy (laughs) a little sunshine today. You are very
0: welcome. (laughs) We are very kind. (laughs) So what I'm hoping is to have you just kind of share a little bit about yourself. You have a unique history and how you came to NDP. And I think you offer kind of an invaluable set of experience. So give our listeners just a little bit about you, your history, and maybe even some fun facts. Well, sure. I'd love
1: to. Well, my career actually started out uh, in an oral surgery practice uh, where I was a primary surgical nurse. And then I ran the clinical portion as well. And that actually lasted for almost 22 years. And I I worked for the same wonderful doctor. And then towards the last portion of that, Time frame, I actually lived and breathed a transition kind of over a three year period. So I got to experience the emotional component that Mm -hmm. goes with that, how it affects the doctors and how it affects the staff as well. And so there was a point in time that it was like this chapter is ending and now it's time to move on. So I returned to school once again and (laughs) (laughs) back to the books. Back to the books, that's right. Earned my MBA and then decided it was time to not only transition in a career, but transition to a new location. And I arrived in Dallas with NDP. We
0: are so happy that you found us. (laughs) So, so happy. And so you started with us and transitioned to our valuation team Mm -hmm. and kind of have been kind of leading the charge there for the last two years, right? We're so happy to have you. And so I, I agree. I think that your experience there with kind of working in a practice and experiencing a transition and understanding kind of all the different pieces and all the different roles and how those work together has just been so valuable and I think it shows in your work product and kind of in your communication. So Thank you for all that you do for us. And I'm so excited (laughs) to talk with you today about this. But before we do that, like something else about you that's personal. What else?
1: I am married. I have two cats, and I live almost three hours away from my job. (laughs) (laughs) So COVID has been good. Yes, it has.
0: No, we've all learned a few things about working remote and that we can all do our jobs from anywhere, right? Yes, we
1: can. Okay,
0: so let's dive into this topic. You know, when we started talking about this episode, what is risk? I think we know risk. We live and breathe it in these valuations that we do. We talk about it in every valuation presentation that we do. But I don't think that we kind of always kind of think about what the actual definition of risk is. And so I want mm-hmm. to read what that is so that we can kind of reference that. So when I look at what risk is, according to investment. I'm sure there's others. Business risk is the exposure of a company or organization has to factors that will lower its profits or lead it to fail anything that threatens a company's ability to, to achieve its financial goals is considered a business risk. So that is true, clearly. I think that's what most people think. How do you relate risk in a transition? Like how do we define it when we kind of talk about, hey, this is what risk is in our valuation presentation?
1: That's a great question. And so from valuation perspectives, what we want to look at is we're looking at those individual elements of a practice that make you different from other dental
0: practices. What makes you unique? Absolutely because I mean, at the end of the day, there's risk in everything, right? A dental practice has risk no matter what. And so how is your practice different from another? If someone's looking to acquire a dental practice, they're accepting an inherent level of risk just from it being a dental practice. right? And so we're going to dive in in a little bit to what those pieces are and how many we look at and kind of how we, it's clearly a subjective process to kind of assess risk. Part of it is. So we'll talk about that a little bit, but before we do that, I want to cover two other pieces we again talk to a lot of valuation clients. What is a misconception about risk from just kind of what we hear from clients?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing that we hear is that risk automatically is negative, negative. Mm-hmm. and from valuation perspective, we have both positive and negative risks with any practice. Yep,
0: and positive risk. A lot of people say positive risk, but that's simply the mitigation, right? <laughs> yes, it's what are you doing to make it different than your buddy or your colleague or your I, the practice down exactly. The yeah. Okay, so if someone's listening to this, and because they're maybe preparing to have evaluation done, or they're thinking about a transition. Can someone mitigate or reduce all or part of the risk that their practice has?
1: Well, you can never mitigate all of the risk. There are different parts that you can certainly address. Mm -hmm. If there's going to be a little bit of a time frame before you have evaluation of your practice done, there are certainly some areas that you can address, such as your overhead, to make adjustments in that area so that it's most favorable to you. Mm -hmm closer to the time of the valuation.
0: Yep. And when we talk about overhead in that respect, because some people will say, well, wait, that's not risk. But in our world, it is right. Like how stable is your overhead, right? That's kind of where that risk comes in. And clearly profitability, if you've listened to the other episodes, Mm -hmm. we've got a couple valuation, one-on-one, et cetera, where we talk about profitability and risk and how they play together. But anything that's going to create more stability in your practice or more consistency in your practice is what you can do. Let's talk about some other areas that someone, could potentially mitigate before we dive into all the pieces. You know, if someone is an oral surgery practice, they clearly have an inherent level of risk which is their referrals. What could someone do to mitigate kind of that transition valuation risk in a transition perspective, right? So that oral surgeon has a chance to walk away or do a partnership and stay around for a while. Like, what is better or worse for that valuation?
1: Right. Well, certainly with the walk away, that's going to have a much higher risk attached to it. Now, if the doctor's willing to work back for whatever length of time it is, and during that time, if they are into helping, with community engagement with the associate, so the length of the time that the associate has been in the practice Mm -hmm. and how much that they are engaging with those referral sources in the community really makes a difference
0: with mitigating some of that risk in the transition. Absolutely. And I would imagine too, not only the time they spend, but if you are three, four, five years out from a transition or evaluation and you have, you know, even if you're a general and you have a lot of referrals, if there are a lot of external referrals, figuring out ways to maybe have internal referrals and different sources of getting patients. Will probably help that too, right? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Okay, before we get into this, I've clearly mentioned a few times I've kind of interchanged transition and valuation. We're talking about valuations today, and kind of that's kind of our goal is like how that risk impacts valuation. But keep in mind that. All of the things we're talking about today also go into a transition, right? So we're talking about valuation as it relates to the price that we've kind of put on our practice, but all of these things impact what you're willing to pay, which is ultimately that price and valuation. So I'll use the term interchangeably, but clearly we're kind of focusing in on the valuation and kind of what we look at from a valuation perspective. So let's dive into these risks. So how many factors do you think roughly that we have that we look at when we're coming up with kind of our subjective risk for each practice
1: and there's probably around 33 35 factors that we
0: take a look at for each practice and then that clearly varies with like specialty so like an ortho might have a few more because they have a few unique pieces about it right oral surgery etc but yeah i agree with you somewhere in that 30 to 35 range so we're not going to talk about all 35 of them but we do want to hit on some of the bigger ones, and I have kind of a list that I want to talk about. And then, Don, I want to get your perspective on some of maybe the less common ones as well. Let's start with PPO, fee-for-service, Medicaid, HMO, kind of the mix that you have in your practice. What does that mix? What's the impact of that mix or non-mix on a practice risk?
1: So ideally, from valuation perspective, we want to see a good mixture of both. And so, when we look at practices and we have one that may be Has all of their patients in one bucket. Say if a practice is 100% fee for service, you know, the owner may say, you know, it's going to have the best profitability. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about dealing with insurance companies. And clearly for them, they may think that it's less risky, but it has its own inherent risk with that because if it's all fee for service, then your patients have a choice. Mm -hmm. They absolutely do. And what
0: about PPO? How would that impact it?
1: So with the PPO, if you find that you have all of your eggs in one bag, Basket with PPO, then what you're doing is you're relying on reimbursement levels, and as those kind of change over time, that is going to impact the practice,
0: even if you are seeing the same Mm -hmm. level of patients. Absolutely, and same with Medicaid, right? So, Medicaid is very federal, state, they kind of can turn it on or off in a heartbeat, and so that is, I imagine, very risky, even though it could be very profitable. Yes. Okay. And so with that, what I'm hearing is everything in one category is more risky than potentially having kind of a diverse set of patients where maybe you've got some fee-for-service, some PPO, and maybe even a little Medicaid mixed in there.
1: Right. And that's that's a perfect way of saying it. And what it is, it's, it's kind of balancing out
0: those positive and negatives. Mm-hmm. So the positive there would be you've kind of spread your risk of each of those pools out by having a little bit of each you diversified. That's a
1: great word I was just going to bring up. It's like having a diversified portfolio. It's how your patients
0: are your portfolio. You want to keep them diversified. Love that. Okay, perfect. Now, and again, I should caveat at the front and I should have done this before. We're going to talk about a lot of these. And we're gonna talk about positives and negatives. At the end of the day, your practice is what it is, right? We're not suggesting that you go out and start taking PPOs because you're all fee for service. Or, you know, we're about to talk about staff. We're not suggesting you change your staff around. But we are wanting you to understand your practice and be educated about what it means so that you can go into the valuation process with an understanding of like what your practice is, what it's not, and be able to kind of just have a better grasp of like what that ending risk is. I think we just get a lot of questions of people who kind of expect one thing aren't educated about the process or kind of what impacts their valuation and have a hard time kind of reconciling it post-evaluation once you already have the number.
1: Right and I think this is great information especially not only for a seller, a seller who may not have ever experienced a valuation but for the buyer as well. Another person who has probably never experienced the valuation process so it's
0: just a a good educational fireside chat. Fireside chat, perfect. (laughs) Okay so we talked about that so PPO, fee for service Medicaid. What about the tenure of your staff? This is an example I always use when I present valuation. So most people are kind of have a very strict idea about the tenure of your staff and how that impacts your risk. Like, how do we view that?
1: Well, as far as from valuation perspective, what we want to see is a good mixture. Now, an example is the oral surgery practice that I came from. You tend to find that offices have kind of a core group of employees, those mm-hmm. that have tenured into the 15, 20 plus year area. Mm-hmm. And then you You want to see that there has been some changeover, some implementing of the process of Mm -hmm. onboarding. So if you have all staff that has been there 15, 20 years, well the practice hasn't had to endure the changes of employees the onboarding the training and you know from an owner's perspective if you have all of your staff that's been there 15 20 years then you know you might feel like that's going to be best for the transition because they they know all of the patients they know all of the processes but that means that the office has also not really experienced any turnover and so they haven't had to do any training and so that's a, a little bit more of a risk. So what we look at with the quality of the staff and the tenure is just that their tenure. Do you have a good mixture? Have you hired recently? Do you have some people that have been there less than five years, you know, a six to ten year? This is just a good mixture and a lot of times what we'll see with these transitions is, you know, it's coming through at a time where there's some growth because there's been an associate added. And so it's more common to see that there is a good mixture Mm -hmm. as opposed to just having those that are high
0: tenured. Yeah, and on the flip side, it's also not wanting to see every single person who's brand new to the practice, right? We do want some kind of longevity to those people because then we know... And, you know, you know this because you were in one, patient relationships oftentimes are with staff members. Right. And so, you know, me personally, if I, my doctor were to transition, I've said this before, and I hope he doesn't listen because I don't want to hurt his feelings, but my doctor <laughs> transitions, like I kind of care about Victoria, my hygienist, instead of my doctor. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it does demonstrate a good stability of the practice when you can retain those uh, employees.
0: Awesome. So another factor that we look at, and it's a big question we get oftentimes in the first initial interview, when someone engages us to do evaluation, Don and I have kind of a little intro interview where we talk about what their expectations are and what their questions are, and we explain our process to them. And one of the questions we always get is, well, how does my equipment factor into this? Like how old or how new or how upgraded my equipment is? How do we view equipment in evaluation and how does the age of that equipment factor into the valuation?
1: Well, we're going to look at it from the point of view of If you are dealing with a practice that has all old equipment, nothing is digital, then that's going to be an investment that a buyer is going to be looking at making Mm -hmm. sooner than later. And, of course, that's going to add a little bit of risk to that transition for the buyer. But if you're looking at a practice that has all new equipment, it's all digital, innovative technology, then that's going to mitigate that risk some for that transition. So
0: you're telling me that we don't... Value the practice and then add on the value of the equipment to get to our value? No, we do not. So we see the equipment as how we produce the profitability of the business. And the risk lies in really the risk to the buyer of having to like upgrade. Right. Um, sooner rather than later. Exactly. Okay. So if you're listening and you're a seller and you've just bought a brand new piece of equipment, no, it does go into your valuation. It makes your risk less than if you weren't digital or computerized or didn't have you know had all your chairs are 25 years old. That does impact your valuation, but not in the dollar for dollar sense that I think most people hope to. Right. Okay. Let's talk about specialty because this is something that I think most people understand. How do does specialty and the nature of like the patient base of each specialty impact evaluation from a risk perspective?
1: Well, from a risk perspective, we're looking at what types of practices are highly referral based, meaning are we dependent upon the general practitioners in the area to refer those procedures out? So those are going to be your oral surgery practices, your periodontal practices. And from evaluation perspective, we're trying to understand that kind of rolls into the competition in the area as well which is Mm -hmm. another one of the categories that we look at because if you're in a very rural area you may have there's one other general practice but you're the only oral surgery game in town the likelihood that you're going to get the referrals is pretty high but if you're even in downtown central there's five other oral surgeons within a three block radius, then there's some competition there. So that for us kind of increases the risk a little
0: bit. Yep. And for a general practice, kind of speaking on both the specialty and competition and those kind of two factors, if you're a general practice, we understand that there's a ton of others around you, right? But we also want to understand competition when it comes to who is your major competitor. Are they right next door and they have a name that's very similar to yours Is it DSO that's just kind of entered town and they set up shop next door to you? So, all of those things. So, typically, when you have kind of a practice that has some kind of recall base, like a hygiene, you're going to have less risk than someone who is purely doctor production, referral based, like you just mentioned. That's right. Okay. What about kind of the relationships of referrals? Do we look at, you know, the age of referrals or the number of referrals? Like, do you think that should add risk to? a practice
1: Yes, certainly the number of new patient referrals that you get is a consideration, but you have to look at the overall production of the practice because even if maybe you potentially have maybe a below average number Mm -hmm. of new patients, doesn't mean that your production is necessarily being affected. And the reason I bring that up is because you may be a phenomenal person in converting the current patients Mm -hmm. into needed treatment as opposed to it Coming strictly from new patients.
0: Yep. And so we look at new patients and, you know, you'll see in your report if you have evaluation done with us, like... You know, we'll say, hey, you have a below average number of new patients. This is kind of where transition and valuation can sometimes kind of split, right? It can be a negative that you have a low number of new patients, but still a good thing for a buyer from an opportunity standpoint. right? Do you have the ability to go out and market? A lot of older practices that we're going to be valuing or working with, they don't need to go out and market. They are happy with where they are. Mm-hmm. They have, like you said, they're probably really good at converting, so they don't need that. So there is something where we and say, Hey, this is a negative risk factor. You know, this is something that we would like to see higher, but it can still be a, an opportunity for a buyer. And again, that kind of always goes back to what we talk about in earlier evaluation episodes, which is like, we don't value opportunity, right? We're not saying, Oh, it's great that you do this. And therefore we're going to give you a higher valuation because the buyer has the chance to do this. No, the buyer is getting the chance to do that. And they're not going to have to pay for it. So anyway, little tangent there. What are some other factors that we need to talk about? Talk about. So, I think another
1: risk factor that we need to address is the location of the practice. So there are some areas that are going to be least desirable for a potential buyer to come into an area. You know, some of those may be in very rural Maine. I know we've had a practice in that location, and and that's been one that's been a little difficult as far as trying to find a buyer. But then, of course, if you have a location that is centralized in a a very populated area, Mm -hmm. those tend to be a little more popular as Mm -hmm. far as the transitions are concerned. But from a valuation perspective, we're looking at, you know, kind of several things that roll into that. What's the likelihood that there's going to be competition, the likelihood that you will find a buyer to come into that area.
0: And I think it's important on that point to talk about, we are not making a judgment on if your city is like a good place to live, right? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of rural and urban great places to have a practice and you've clearly been successful. It is all about how easily it is to replace you or an associate should they be needed. And rural is just harder to find Associates mm-hmm. who want to go to those places and therefore that is challenging. Along the same lines of location, you know, if I'm valuing a practice in a city that is maybe in notable decline and I'm I'm thinking like Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, right. <laughs> we are <were> both thinking <laughs> the same thing. You look at the demographics and it's like in decline and people aren't moving there and you can oftentimes see that in the practice numbers, but that is also something that we have to consider. And we look at national and local demographics, and a lot of the times it's not a significant factor in evaluation, but every now and then it impacts it.
1: Right, and we look at that socioeconomic status of the area because when you're in a highly affluent area, I remember one valuation that we did that was in a part of New Mexico that I was actually quite surprised the percentage of It's high affluency in the area, Mm -hmm. and so that kind of tells you that that area is more likely to be able to support Mm -hmm. that type of practice. Now, when you get into the areas where you have, say, 60% low income and 30% middle, then you start to question, okay, is this going to be supported, and will you see the increase
0: in production if you bring on an associate? Yeah, especially if you look at the mix of, you know, we talked about earlier in this episode of, like, the mix of patients, right? if you have a fee-for-service area and it's on the decline and you have a huge amount of low income and we're in an economic recession as of the time of the valuation, like all those factors produce risk, where if you have highly affluent, it's fee-for-service, probably that mix makes sense. So mm-hmm. another important point is it's not we're looking at each individual point and saying this point in, in kind of a silo, it is very much kind of outside of that silo. Okay, let's talk about some maybe other pieces that we often look at. So we've talked about new patient flow, competition, specialty, age of the equipment, the tenure of the staff, PPO, fee-for-service, Medicaid. What are some other factors that we look at? Sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's okay.
1: (laughs) No, I think one of the other things that I feel is quite important is if there are any written contracts that you may have with any current associates. Um, Oh, yeah, good point. And the reason that is important is because if there's any restrictive covenants, meaning that they cannot practice within five or 10 miles of Mm -hmm. your practice for a duration of three to five years, uh, which is kind of average of what we see. If you don't have something like that in place, say you're in a practice and you have two associates, you have one looking to buy in. Well, maybe that other associate says, oh, well, I'll just go down the street and open up. I don't have any restrictions. So that's going to automatically create some risk for the practice, knowing that
0: there is going to be some competition quite close in proximity thousand percent so again that's something that you can do to mitigate your risk if that's a very easy thing that you can do to make sure that your associate agreements have non-competes if you're looking to go into evaluation. And then another contract that you kind of spurred me to think about was your lease, right? If you don't own your mm-hmm. building and you're leasing from a third party and you're going into evaluation, if you don't have the ability to renew that lease or you're month to month, so therefore you don't really have any kind of guaranteed, you can be in a space for any amount of time, that is risky for evaluation. You have to have a place. You don't need a lot, but you need a place mm-hmm. <laughs> to do that dentistry to keep that practice going. And so that definitely can add some risk. So yeah, that's a great point. Any others that you can think of?
1: Well, just some of the other things that we do look at is not only as far as the insurance coverage, we kind of look to see, are you engaging with any managed care plans? Um, A lot of times, as you know, those will have some lower reimbursement rates as well. Sometimes practices will choose to kind of shift away from the HMOs or the managed care plans if they know that there is a transition coming up only to kind of, for lack of a better term, clean up their financials a Mm -hmm. little bit to tighten things up to help mitigate some of that risk for the practice.
0: Yeah, and another thing, not a managed care, but something that we kind of run into often, Delta Premier. Yes. That's kind of a big one too Mm -hmm. because that risk is that your new buyer can't get it. And so if your practice is primarily Delta Premier and your buyer can't get that credentialing, they're going to go to PPO, there's going to be a kind of an automatic loss of collections. And so how much Delta Premier premiere you have also goes into the valuations.
1: Yeah, and that kind of my experience has been about 50-50 on whether Mm -hmm. or not All of the providers within the practice do have the credentialing. And sometimes we are a little surprised when they say, no, the owner's the only one and there's no plan for the new associate to be credentialed. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So just understanding what that plan is and kind of asking the questions. And I think that's where you do a phenomenal job of digging in, um, (laughs) into the weeds to get all of that data. Okay. So I'm going to list a few others and then we're going to wrap it up. But So I think also something that's important and we talk about this in other episodes is like the ratio of like doctor production to hygiene production and kind of those certain ones. Hygiene is clearly like the profit. But what is too much doctor production or not too much, I shouldn't say that. What does a higher proportion of doctor production do and if the hygiene is low, what does that do to the risk?
1: Well, if there's too much production on the owner, what that does is it does increase the risk because if you have an associate that comes in who cannot maintain that same level of production or say something happens to the owner Mm -hmm. and they have to bring someone in on an emergent basis as a temporary, that's going to affect the production if they cannot maintain that.
0: Yeah, so (laughs) it sounds like twofold. Like Not only is it the replacement of that person owner right mm-hmm. if they go out and really i guess it could be anyone doesn't have to be the owner and then two just knowing that like you have to find someone that can do that level of production like even in a transition to be able to kind of replace that person so doctor production great can be super profitable can be a great business model i know we see that with a lot of our like highly cosmetic kind of big case type doctors but does add to the risk from a valuation perspective of like how quickly can we replace that person man it sounds like there's like a lot that goes into this. Yes, there is. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just that we come up with that random subjective number, just like put our finger in the air. No, absolutely not. (laughs) We
1: we spend a lot of time discussing (laughs) these elements. So, um, and I do think I do want to touch on one other, which is definitely what is that level of production for the hygiene pool? So, you know, on the inverse of what the doctor production should or shouldn't be within a practice, you know, when you start seeing the practice, Practices that have a very healthy hygiene pool. And, and when we talk about healthy, we're looking at the 35 to 40% range as far as what their hygiene is producing. And so that's just a profit pool for the owners to pull from. So, of course, that can mitigate some of the risk of the practice knowing that it is that healthy and and you see it continuing to trend upward each year. Now, when you get to the point where, say, you've had maybe a changeover in staff and you've had a year or two where that's kind of dropped back off and all of a sudden you see, oh, it's at 20%, maybe that's then the time to take a look if you're going to be having a valuation done in the next one to two years to say, okay, how do we need to to improve these numbers, increase that so that that you can increase that profitability pool.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we do see that sometimes. I mean, and again, Mm -hmm. it's just if you've owned your practice for a while, you know, you can kind of just get in a groove and kind of keep going and you kind of may not see that trend, but understanding kind of again, comparability and kind of consistency year over year. Remember we look at four to five years and we're doing Mm -hmm. evaluation. So we're looking at that trend. We're asking those questions to make sure we understand that. And then one final thing I want to cover before we kind of wrap it up here today. Ortho is a little bit different as well. We look at a few different components for ortho, in addition to kind of the specialty we're looking at. And that's kind of the relationship of that contract receivable balance to production collections, kind of what are the breakout of the case stats and kind of that conversion rate, those things in kind of the non-valuation world, when we're looking at other valuations, it drives me crazy when we get a valuation and there's no reference to like production or case stats or contracts, because yes, of course the numbers matter. Of course the profitability matters, but all of those things... Really go into kind of how valuable and what that value ends up being, and I know we in our team here we look at those things. So understanding the relationship because that tells us how healthy that orthodontic practice is, it growing, how many prepaids are there. So those are really critical aspects that we look at too. Again, not making a judgment, but more of a hey, if I'm an investor buying this practice and I'm looking at this risk, these are pieces that I need to understand and be educated about. Well, Don, it was. Lovely, I will tell you, you are a lovely change from Mr. Loretto every now and then. <laughs> Big shoes to fill, I know. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thank you um, for having me. As you have probably heard, risk is complicated. We've talked about probably a third of what we go through in every valuation. It's important to understand and be educated about it. Like we've said in the beginning, you cannot mitigate away all the risks. There is risk that's going to be there and risk and the type of practice you've built. But understanding, being educated, educated, ...educated about it, realizing what you can and can't change... I think is step number one if you're looking to do evaluation or have a transition of your practice. So thank you for listening to us. Thank you for joining us. So yes, you're welcome. Thank and you. And that's all we have today, guys. So thanks for joining us on episode 52 of Transition Talk. listen to the treadmill in the car, wherever you listen. We love doing what we do and love talking about transition and valuation with you. <laughs> Make sure to subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, friends.